Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Happy holidays to each of you from those of us at Dabble and the Storycraft Cafe. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey this year. In 2022, we started up the Storycraft Cafe and we started this podcast as an offshoot of that. And in the intervening months, I feel like that the Storycraft Cafe has become this wonderful place, this haven in a crazy social media world where writers and people that love storytelling can come together, share ideas, get encouragement, and achieve some goals together. That, you know, for me personally, um, that was a goal that I had in mind, a place where where people could come together and encourage one another and fight the good fight together. And I think we have done that. For this final episode of 2022 of the Storycraft Cafe podcast, we're going to take a look back uh, over several uh, of our fantastic interviews that we've had this year and uh, and reflect back on a lot of the the writerly wisdom and goodness that these guests uh, that we have been so fortunate to have uh, that that these guests have brought to the show and to the writer community. So get you a mug of something hot, uh, tea, coffee, hot cocoa, whatever it is, and uh, sit back and enjoy some of the best highlights of 2022. And there were several that I could not choose because we just didn't have enough time. But you can always go to storycraft.cafe and find the podcast links there or just search Storycraft Cafe in your favorite podcasting app or YouTube or or however you uh, get the Storycraft Cafe podcast. And you can listen back through the full interviews of all of these great shows. Buckle up and thank you from the bottom of my heart and from all of us here at Dabble and the Storycraft Cafe. Thank you for joining us and thank you for listening. Honestly, it was that moment of um, write what you want to read. I wasn't finding enough of the stories that I wanted as a reader. And because of that, I started telling myself the stories, you know, just thinking ideas through. Um, I actually, I've always been into writing. I was a huge fan fiction writer in my late teens, early twenties and all through the college years. Um, so I loved telling myself stories or retelling stories in ways that I liked better. You know, if you're a fan fiction person, you, you know how that works. Yeah. You know, you take characters you love or you take a, an ending that you didn't love and you change it. Um, so when I was ready to start writing, well, what made me ready was not finding enough stories and wanting to see a different type of story or more of a certain story. And I just couldn't find it because the Regency genre was, I think we've gone kind of through a renaissance in the last mm -hmm. couple of years. And I came in at the very beginning of that. 
um, because people were starting to read the books that were available, but they weren't being churned out fast enough to satiate gotcha. the readers. So you um, you are an indie publisher. Um, you you publish your own work. Um, was that always a, a consideration for you? Uh, because you came a- along in publishing a kind of uh, that Kindle revolution that we talked about a minute ago, kind of a- around the time that was really maturing. And there was lots of information out there about how to uh, self-publish or indie publish. And uh, there was a lot of, um, uh, you know, good feelings around indie publishing. You really came in at, at a great time. Um, was that something that was that part of your strategy uh, or how did you decide that indie publishing was going to be the route for you? After I started writing my stories, I wanted to share them. And of course, we start looking at the different options for that traditional publishing and indie publishing. I didn't know a lot about indie publishing. And I would say 2016, when I was starting to really think about this and dig into it, um, I had a poor opinion myself of what indie publishing was. And like you said, that was the beginning of this revolution. And uh, I spent all of 2017 um, writing and researching about indie publishing and talking to as many people as I could talk to. I read, at the time, there was this wonderful book out called for Lo- Writing for Love or Money by S.K. Quinn. She's since taken it down uh, because it's no longer current, but that book and her advice really made me understand that I didn't necessarily want the clout that mm-hmm. comes with traditional publishing. I didn't need that validation Um, which I think a lot of people, you know, feel like, and I'm speaking in very general broad terms here, but there are still people who feel like they haven't made it until a publishing house or an agent have told them that they've made it. And I realized I didn't need that. I just wanted to get my stories out. Um, For me, this wasn't a business decision. It started out as a stay-at-home mom's hobby that she did for fun so that she could share her stories and um, self-publishing seems like a great way to do that. And as I was researching, I found out, oh, people are making money doing this. And um, so I, you know, I was publishing smart. You know, I wanted the pretty cover. I made sure right. that my book was well edited. Um, but I honestly was thinking to myself, if I make enough extra money to, you know, take the family on a small vacation once a year or to just pay for myself to go to these cool writing conferences that I keep hearing about and haven't yet attended, then that's good enough for me. And that's how I kind of entered it. it was not thinking this is going to be a career, um, not thinking this is going to be what I'm going to do for the rest of my life or that one way was necessarily better than the other for income. It was more about how can I get my stories out? quickly yeah. and share them with others with uh, with the ember war it was i i told myself okay if this doesn't sell then i don't i don't have the touch i don't have the magic i guess i'm going to just abandon this forever it's gonna be like ah, yeah, i wrote a book once haha but right. um so so when it came time to do the ember war i just said i'm gonna have as much i'm just gonna have a lot of fun with this and you know just went up you know just had a huge amount of fun writing it and I thought, okay, this is going to be like a, a Michael Bay movie, but with mildly, marginally better dialogue. Right. That's, that was my plan for the Ember War, and I, so I put it out there, and then it, it actually sold really well. And like I remember when, like the first time I sold more than a hundred copies of single day, I woke my wife up, and she, don't do this, 
uh, guys at home, you know, you tell your wife that you, you sold a hundred bucks in the middle of the night. She's not gonna be pleasant, please. So you know, I'm like, hey, I sold a, a, over a hundred books. I, I will be gosh darned. People really like this. Oh, maybe I'm on to something, you know? So right. it was the feedback from the, you know, the free market that said, you know, we're enough readers are going, hey, I like that, click buy. And actually now I'm at the point after about seven years of full-time writing where I'm, 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 I'm like, I'm this close to selling my one millionth book. I'm just waiting for some uh, sales reports from from Bain and a couple other places. I'm this close. I'm like 981,000 books sold. And if I could just so, it's going to happen this year for sure. But my millionth book is coming. So, but then uh, and then when I put out the second book, and I was I said, yeah, I'm still going to have as much fun as I can. And you know, when I was writing the second book, uh, it's mostly uh, one small team running around a planet trying to find this one. Uh, artifact that's been hidden and I, I realized this is kind of boring because they're just ducking probes alien you know the, the bad guys and, and I was like, it's a little boring like I need more here and I, then I look back through my other ideas I've written down and like, I had this one thought for you know just in my notes it's uh, free the farm and what that was is you know aliens had captured a bunch of humans thousands of years ago yeah. and we're just breeding that and you know keeping them kind of like farm animals and there was this one, you know, this one team of space marines had to go in there, say, "Hey, no, they're going to eat you. Let's have a revolt and get out." And I just had this idea for who these aliens were that were keeping human beings as as cattle. And, I, and I'm looking at the second book, and I thought, "Well, this is boring. Hey, I got this other idea. Why don't I bring these bad guys in here to make things interesting?" So, so now the second book has evil alien lizards that feed off brains, and then at the end, there's this giant crystal jellyfish. It's just, it's insane, but somehow people love it. People, they really do love it. So I'm, I, I'm you know, I, I can't argue with, with my audience. So they like what they like, and I just give them more of it. The, the first answer is that revision is a necessary evil, and life is short, so I don't want to engage in any more than I need to. And yeah. that's a purely practical matter. You know, uh, To Sleep in a Sea of Stars runs about 308,000 words in the published version. And it went through extensive revisions. I finished the first draft in 2016, and it didn't work. And so I was revising it from 2016 until mid to late 2017, when everyone told me it's still not working. And then I had to step back from it and decide if I was going to abandon the project or find a way to fix it. I wrote 200 pages by hand in a week and a half and ripped apart every bit of the characters in the story and then reassembled them into something that I felt worked. And then end of 2017 and all of 2018, I was, and into 2019, I was writing my butt off and basically wrote a new book. Um, and it just takes a long time when it's a book that size. So if you, if any of our viewers have read the book, they'll know that it's divided into sections. Right. Everything after like the first 20 or 30 pages of section two is new. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't realize that. All the places that the characters go, all the things they do, everything that it means, all new. Um, it's painful. That, that's, well, first off, that is a huge commitment to a project because yeah. uh, a lot of people would have abandoned it and, yeah. and, 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 and maybe and write may, something else. And maybe I should have from a career standpoint because it might have been easier to go write something new with the lessons I learned. But I'm very stubborn and I hate giving up. 
Um, my agent said one of the kindest things to me after I delivered the revisions, which was, he said he thought I was the best re reviser and rewriter that he'd ever worked with or has ever seen in his agency, um, which was meant an awful lot to me, but it was a painful yeah. lesson and not one I wanted to learn. Um, so the reason I had to go through that is because of a failure to do what I did with Aragon. This is still answering your larger question. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So all of my stories come to me as usually an image and an emotion. In the case of To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, it was the very final image of the book, as well as the image of the main character finding this alien artifact. Everything else in that book is to justify those two scenes. In the case of Aragon in the Inheritance Cycle, it was Aragon finding the dragon egg and then what follows after that and trying to justify that and make it, make it emotionally relevant and um, accessible to the audience. So what I found is I'll get this feeling, I'll get this image and that's cool, but that's not a story. That's, you know, that's a, that's a picture, but it's not yeah. a story. And then I start doing exactly what I wrote on my website. I start asking questions and I usually do this in notebooks. I write by hand. I find that it accesses a different part of my brain as opposed to typing. And I just ask questions and I, Okay, humans are storytelling animals. We tell stories all the time. It's how we arrange sure. both fiction and nonfiction information. You know, A caused B causes C. That's a story. Great. We're good at it. So if you and, and if you tell a story to someone verbally, you usually can identify what's wrong with it as you're telling it because you can see the impact it has on your audience. And it's it's not working. You feel it. Yeah. If you just read it on the page or just type it, sometimes that doesn't happen. So for me, I will talk to myself in my notebooks. It's a literal conversation between between me and myself and no one else. And I'll write things like, I wonder what happens if this happens. No, that won't happen. I, you know, I'll argue with myself. Yeah. I'll talk. I'll talk. And I talk through the story and the characters until it makes enough sense that I could then sit down with someone and verbally tell them the story from start to finish in a way that makes sense. Because if I sit down to write without the ability to do that, I don't understand my story. I don't understand what it's, what it's doing for the audience or for the characters. Now, I'm not saying you have to sit down with someone and actually tell them the story because most authors would find that painful. We're all a bit of an you know introverted to one degree or yeah. another, but you should have the ability, the theoretical ability to do that. Because then when you're writing, you're going to know what every scene is doing for the character and the larger story. And then you can write fast. Uh, what got me in trouble with To Sleep was thinking I knew what that larger story was, but not mm. having really done the grunt work and trying to pull it off by the seat of my pants and getting myself into deep, deep trouble. The reason I was able to write this dragon book recently in four months and everyone's saying it's working is because I, I had the image, I had the feeling, and then I worked out the story. I knew exactly what it was going to do for the main character, where I was going to leave the audience. And then all I had to do was write it. Whose turn is it? It's your turn. Well, first of all, thank you. And that's wonderful to hear. I, I love hearing that. Um, and, and I think that is true. As Lynn said, our books are definitely character driven and we get yeah. really involved with our characters. I mean, I know when we're in the midst of, of developing, especially the first go round, um, we, 
you you really live with these characters. They're with you all the time. You're thinking about them when you're walking or taking a shower, sometimes even dreaming about them. Uh, and we r- really come to care about them. And when we have to kill someone, it's really painful. It's you know um, when when someone has to die. Uh, so I I th- again thank you, and um, I'm glad to hear that because we we do care a lot about our characters and we and, and I feel like we get to know them really well right um, you guys wrote uh, uh, an, an op-ed piece uh, or, or um, for crimereads.com um, mm-hmm. a while back the rise of the female stalker in fiction and film um, mm-hmm. there, there has definitely been a, uh, a tide that has turned uh, in psychological suspense and thrillers, especially where, um, you know, as you talk about in this article that um, the the roles have have changed in a lot of stories. And um, I credit you guys uh, for a lot of that. There's there's a lot of uh, shift in the way that we see stories and the way that stories can come about. Um, what do you guys um, attribute that to, or, or how do you feel about the changing roles and um, who we consider typical good guys, bad guys? Uh, you know, if you want to look at it black and white like that. I think that um, Gone Girl was was really a, a, a watershed moment for yeah. the, the genre because all of a sudden, you know, you're looking at this seemingly likable character seemingly victim at the beginning of the book and it and it's totally turned on its head and i think it almost gave permission to to be able to write female characters that are not perfect any longer and i mean not that they necessarily there's a spectrum of course now in that book she was the bad guy i mean and you know even though although the husband wasn't great either um but i think it was a it really gave us a freedom to still write a protagonist who isn't necessarily the villain, but who isn't perfect and who can make mistakes and have secrets and do things that are not conventionally in, you know, in the women's fiction, the perfect woman who looks perfect, acts perfect, all of that. And also, again, to switch it around so that sometimes, so you don't know, we have it, it doubled the playing field in terms of who the bad guy is because it's not a guy necessarily anymore. Right. It's, it can be, you know, one person, two person, whomever. Um, and I, I think it, it really opened the floodgates for more interesting and layered and complicated characters, which is great because it's much more interesting and much more realistic, I think. I, I saw you say, and I forget where I saw it. It was a, a video somewhere where you talked about the reality that every for every square yard, there are something like 800,000 uh, viruses that literally fall from the sky um when when you started and i'm i'm sure i butchered that uh, that fact um but when you started exploring that um you know there there comes a point where you're doing research and you're and you're just adding facts and facts and facts um there comes a point where those facts then become threaded into a narrative and and you figure out how sigma force can come in and and then who some of the other players are going to be and and then how do these these colliding facts intervene into these people's lives how did the the story begin to unfold 
Well, again, it was again looking into not so much building a pandemic novel, though. I, you know, I'm always looking for the threat that's going to sort of uh, overhang uh, the character, the global threat, and then there's the personal yeah. threats. Uh, so, you know, I knew there was going to be this this viral outbreak in Africa that was going to be, you know, turning humans into this adult cat, you know, cat cattle-like catatonic state. At the same time, it's turning us dull. It's ramping up the environment into this very hostile, very predatory, very um, toxic. Uh, uh, danger. So it's you know, it's a perfect storm for you know wiping us out, and uh, so when I was reading about the, the viruses, I said that I really wanted to deal with the weird biology of viruses and how they they tie into our own evolutionary history. Is that you know I found this fact that you know, they believe that anywhere between forty to eighty percent of the human DNA. Uh, probably originated from viral invasions. You know, little pieces of virus became incorporated into to DNA during evolutionary development. Eventually, uh, that led to uh, the arrival of consciousness. Even the uh, the our human consciousness is believed to be acquired from a viral invasion. There's a gene that all of us possess called the ARC gene. It's a gene that uh, basically controls the function of our synapses. Uh, it's, it regulates uh, our ability to think. And without that gene present, we would not uh, be the thinking beings that we are. And it has been now known that that, is, that virus, the, that little code of, of, of our DNA came from a virus. So, uh, you know, now virologists are believing what's called a virus world theory. They believe that, you know, viruses may have been uh, much more important in, in, in evolutionary development, that possibly the, even the, uh, the source of life itself, and that uh, viruses are very much in folds into our evolutionary development. So me being the thriller writer, I'm thinking, well, you know, what if Mother Nature gets a little bit uh, tired of us and decides that uh, evolutionary, it's time to make some changes. Um, and if she's going to use a, a key to unlock that uh, that change, she's going to use a virus. So that became the thrust for building the story. Uh, Sarah, I'm glad you brought up that that point about plot because um, f- the types of books that you write that are um, that have kind of become your your sweet spot in publishing, and and you've you've written um, kind of all along the genre spectrum. Um, which is something else I want to touch on in just a minute. But um, the the types of books that that you have become known for are um, psychological suspense, bordering on horror. Uh, and <laughs> you know, let's be honest the the the, the farther you go uh, along your writing path, the more close to horror you get it's like full circle i started out i started out as a horror writer and i'll end up back as a horror writer that's so funny (laughs) that's so funny um but you know the those books tend to be uh especially with a crime element tend to be plot heavy um yet your books are very um close uh kind of close camera if you will um, character studies uh, oh. because you, we're getting literally inside characters' heads that you've come up with, and so they're they're very character driven. Um, how do you balance character versus plot, especially with the types of books that you write? Well, I think again it comes back to that tight conceit at the core. You know, mm-hmm. behind her eyes, how far would you go for obsessional love? You know, right. how, how far would you go for that? This one is, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but it's, you know, are you going mad or is someone doing it to you? You know, that that kind of sort of right. is the question. 
Um, and I'm very much, I mean, I'm not comparing myself to either of these people, but I really like sort of Hitchcock and Polanski style paranoia, mm. claustrophobia, ordinary people put into strange situations. And especially, especially in a domestic situation where it's your marriage, your home, your life. And I think it's now, you know, I don't particularly want to write another marriage trauma book because I feel like I've done a few and everyone's doing them. But I do think I bring my certain little flavor to it. So for me, I think if you're going to do what I do and add some weird into it, you really have to get in the characters' heads because right. like my problem with a lot of horror novels Especially, especially bad ones. I mean, in particular, bad ones, because this is clearly an example of bad or inexperienced. I'll put, I'll say inexperienced because I've read some good crime writers who've tried to write a horror novel, and this is they've done this. So, my problem with a crime, a horror novel, like a ghost story, where someone sees a ghost very early mm -hmm. on in the book, and they're like, "Oh my god, I've seen a ghost," and then they they go on like this, or they're, "Oh my god, this ghost is following me around," and they tell someone, and then someone else believes them, and then they're on this investigation. And I think, well, that's not how it would work. If I started to see something that wasn't there, I would think, number one, oh my god, I've got a brain tumor. Number two, am I going mad? But what right. you know, it's a very insular. For, before I even got to anything supernatural, I'm going to go through all those paranoias and worries and stresses, and it will all be internal. Right. So I think when you're going to go weird, you have to really ground your world you're in so that when it starts to go weird, people will go along with it, you know. So like with a ghost story, I think it's better to have a few creaks, a few, you know, like a few, a little build up before anything is seen, if anything is ever seen. So in this, there is weird, but it starts with her worrying about her personal history that's come back into her life with her family and then you know trying to keep that secret from her husband then not sleeping and then worrying about the past repeating itself and all of this is going on before we even start to think there's anything odd happening does that make any sense I'm, it's, it's late in the day on a friday hank you're gonna have to work with me here i'm sorry <laughs> i should be napping <laughs> what is it about romance as a genre that uh that you love so dearly because you can do anything with it. You can do fantasy, you can do mysteries, you can do paranormal, you can do found families, you can do, um, you know, whatever uh, genre or idea or like that you have in reading. We have that for you. And plus you get to, you get to explore people's emotions and uh, how people connect, which I think is a, a, a skill. You have all these people who say, well, romance is easy to write. Yeah, right. Okay, try it. Right. Um, try it on, you know, 400 pages and, and then sell it. Um, I think it's probably one of the, if not the hardest genre to write because you're dealing with emotions. Right. Um, and that that interaction between two people and... And then, you know, the tropes that we have, we, you know, we love the tropes and, and, and being able to spin those. Yeah, you're going to get the happy ending. <clears throat> and I think that is what draws our readers. But the, the hard part is how to spin that trope in a way that only you can spin it and that makes your book unique and loved. So... It's pretty hard to do. 
speaking of tropes, uh, how constrained do you feel by the tropes? Or, uh, you, you know, there, there are certain things that we come to expect in, yeah. in certain genres, but are those things that you think about at all? Or, you know, after 50 something books, is it just ingrained in the way you tell stories? Well, how do you feel about those? Well, you can you can say, okay, today I'm going to write an enemies to lover. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, maybe you want to do uh, found families. Or maybe you want to do fake marriage. Or maybe you want to do a fake dating. I mean, we got so many things on the menu that you can right. do. And then the, the, the joy of putting more than one trope together. You know, so you could have... I've got an enemies to lovers. I've got a fake marriage. I've got, we got one bed, which is also a trope. Um, <laughs> you know, you put all those together in a pot and you're making gumbo on the page, right? You know, so, right. um, but the, 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 the readers are intrigued by how are these two people who cannot stand the sight of each other going to work it out? so that they get that H-E-A, the happily ever after, or the H-F-N, which is happily for now, uh, at the end. And that's the, the joy in it and the work in it. Um, when when you're writing thrillers, uh, you know, you would think that these stories are uh, plot-driven, like that there's, there's a, a scenario that you have dreamt up. Uh, but your books are very much character books and they're they're about you you present a character you give us reasons to care about that character and then you do horrible things to that character and and <laughs> um what, what do you think about the the types uh, or the genre that you like to play in and and whether you know do, do those things even make sense anymore you know you you think well, this book is a is a plot driven book, or this this category is a character driven, and and do those things do those boundaries have to um, have to be there, or can we uh, subvert those expectations? I think you have to execute both perfectly. Okay, for books to work. Um, if it's a plot driven book, it has to have a great plot. But you can't have a decent book without a character that you're rooting for. You have to have at least one character that the that the reader really connects with and is rooting for. And it's, that's why it's so interesting. We've had this huge uh, group of books that came out with unreliable narrators. And, and yes. the readers are like, I'm tired of this. I can't connect with any of these characters. I want people I can connect with. Um, when you can only write Gone Girl so many times. You can only, yes. I mean, the domestic suspense novel has to morph into something else or we're going to lose the readers, I think. Yeah. You know, if you look at the at the New York Times list, it's rom-coms. And what is that? That's personality driven, right? Exactly. That's, that's characters who, you know, enemies to lovers and they're they're really experiencing a lot of growth cycles in those stories and everything. There's some of my favorite that enemies to lovers is my favorite trope ever. <laughs> I, just, I love it. But I think, I think readers are really wanting they're, they're tired. Now I shouldn't put words in readers mouths. Readers are smart. They know what they like, but sure. I think the kitchen sink twist is maybe becoming a little passe. Yeah. Once you've conditioned the reader for a twist, if you have a book, that's not that kind of book and they don't realize that then they're disappointed. 
Right. So uh, I think it's absolutely vital if you're still writing in these twisty areas, you've got to have characters that the readers just want to champion, that they don't want to put down the book because they want to see what they're going to do next. That is, that's, I think, true of every genre um, from literary to horror. You need a character that you love and you want to root for and you want to find out more about them. I, I try not to think about it too much so I don't have a panic attack. Um, but I good advice. But it is something I do think about. Um, and it's it's definitely a thing. Uh, you know, like there's a couple of different facets to that. One is me personally and one is the wider kind of way that people interact with books. Um, the wider way people interact with books, I think that I think that we're just we're in an era where there's so much competition for for your uh, attention. You know, when I was a kid growing up in a household that didn't have television, you know, my parents, you know, we had a TV and a VHS player and I could rent things from the library or from the video store. But my parents didn't believe in they didn't like TV. They didn't they thought it was, you know, kind of they thought it was hokey and a bad influence and stuff like that. So I, I didn't have television. I didn't have the Internet really at that point. So there was nothing to compete for my kind of attention. Uh, and so I read a ton and um, and and, you know, kind of where we reached a point where we now have a million things competing for our attention. Right. If you want to grab somebody and even someone who is used to reading and is more patient and really loves digging into these things. Even those people still have, you know, a smartphone sitting next to them. They still have the TV show they want to watch tonight. Um, And so I feel like you kind of have to jump in and get to the crux of the matter quickly. You have to you have to snag them and bring them in quickly. And and that was that was, you know, kind of my thoughts on getting on, on starting the book with a boom. I think that the. I think that the execution, uh, originally, my idea was that it was going to be either towards the middle or towards the end of the book. Um, And and it didn't take long for me to say, actually, I think it's more interesting if we start the book with um, the overthrow of the king and then find out what the fallout of that event is um, and the consequences of that. Uh, but but for me, kind of changing that over to me personally, I I do not have a very um, I I'm not a patient person. I'm not uh, I don't have a, a, a long kind of ability to hold on to things. Even when I was a little kid, when I read an epic fantasy novel, I skimmed a lot. I skimmed, you know, if I was reading you know, Wheel of Time, for instance, and there was a plot line I wasn't terribly thrilled with, I would just kind of flip to the end of that chapter, find out whatever pertinent thing had developed in the chapter, and then say, oh, okay, I I don't care about Perrin right now. You know, his right. his plot line, you know, because yeah, that's how Wheel of Time went, is that, you know, the various point of view characters would become whiny for a book or two, or they'd become right. just super boring. <laughs> and, and then eventually they would come back around and be my favorite character again. But and then during the book 12 and say, gosh, I wish I'd have paid more attention to Perrin. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, and yeah. so, you know, I kind of did that. I would skim things. And so when I wrote Promise of Blood, I had this idea in my head of, OK, I want to write an epic fantasy because I do love epic fantasy, but I want to leave out the stuff I normally skim. 
Um, I want to pace it more like an urban fantasy. I want the action to just keep going, going, going. And uh, and that guy that got, I, I think, pretty good results. You know, Promise of Blood can be a little bit start and stop at times because I was yeah. still very much exploring that idea. Um, and uh, and and you can see that in the reviews. I actually always love how when you get a review uh, about something like pacing, you can have one review that says this really the pacing didn't work for me it was very kind of janky i didn't like it and then the next review is literally oh man i loved how quickly this moved i was so glad that they didn't you know dwell on all these things that you know are boring to me yeah Uh, and so so that's kind of how i i it was a conscious decision to say i'm i'm not interested in these long tale of you know, getting into a character's head for 50 pages before any, you know, before any action happens or, you know, stopping the middle of the book to to have a massive feast scene. Right. Right. Uh, That that spends, you know, only a little bit of time on, you know, development and intrigue and is mostly describing food and describing characters being snippy to each other. Um, So so, you know, and 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 I some of that stuff I loved to read even. And but but my temperament as a writer is different even than than some of those things that I enjoyed. Um, and I realized over time that I was good at keeping the pacing up. And every time I try to slow down, I'm not actually quite very good at that. I'm not good at the, you know, slow everything down and take right. some time to really massage the world. It, it bores me. And so I, I move back to my normal thing. Um, you, you are an indie author. Is that mm-hmm. right? You, you publish yourself. Right. Um, over the last 10 years or so, um, indie publishing has really come into its own mm-hmm. and the, the Amazon Kindle and the KDP platform probably have a lot to do with that because there was a, a platform to publish on and a company behind it that supported authors and, and, you know, had built this infrastructure to make it easy for folks to do. Um, how do you feel about the publishing landscape today? Because, uh, due to that indie revolution that has happened, the, uh, the traditional publishers have had to, um, finally recognize this other, you know, faction in publishing and they've been, uh, they've had to respond in a lot of ways and, and try mm-hmm. to, um, meld their business into the changing, um, landscape of, of what people would, the indie publishing has now filtered down to readers and readers expect, you know, certain things from So how do you feel about, you know, from your vantage point about the state of publishing now and the, the whole indie versus traditional, um, you know, uh, argument or Mm -hmm. has that, has that been settled by now? Um, I think it's a great thing that indie has expanded in the way it has because it gives so many more opportunities to writers who normally would be overlooked, whether it was because of their background, because of their resources. A lot of big traditionally published authors, certainly not all of them, but a lot of big ones 
they kind of had connections. <laughs> they had right. way, ways to get in that other people, you know, were just sort of relegated to the slush pile. Um, I think indie offers a lot more advantages to people, especially, like I said, based on your background, but also if you're writing a niche genre that publishers maybe aren't interested in, but there's definitely an audience and a readership out there. Um, so I think it's a great thing. Obviously, the negative side is that anyone can publish. So some sometimes there's some not so great pieces of fiction and nonfiction floating around. Um, but usually to that, I say, well, I'm sure you can think of quite a few traditionally published books that aren't sure. the best quality, but they were marketable and, you know, people right. bought them, even though they kind of suck, you know? <laughs> so um, I, I think it's a, it's definitely a, a positive overall impact. I think it's also positive that traditional publishers are finally starting to respond. I honestly think they started to respond too late yeah. um, and, and they're, they're behind the times because I think they were, they were trying so hard to cling to the idea that traditional publishing is legit publishing. You get the seal of approval of saying my work is good enough to be with this publishing house. Um, I think that mentality isn't really working for them anymore because so many indie authors like myself are going indie, not because they couldn't get a, an agent or a publishing deal. I didn't More query. Profitable. Right. I, I didn't query. I, I went with the, uh, the, you know, avenue that was going to make me more money and yeah. I have a business background. So I knew how to market myself and do a lot of the things that the publishing house would have done for me. I know how to do it myself. Um, so clinging to that idea of there's prestige with traditional publishing. I don't think that worked in their favor. And now they're realizing that, that's not necessarily true and readers don't necessarily care about that. They just want a good book. So personally, I, I think it's a good thing that indie has risen in popularity. I certainly don't think it's for everyone. I definitely think there are pros and cons to either indie or traditional um, and it's different strokes for different folks. Um, but I think it's smart that traditional publishers have finally started to respond, although I think they should have started to get up with the times <laughs> maybe like five or six years sooner, yeah. you know, seen it as the threat that it was. But isn't that the way that that big businesses seem to always do? I mean, you know, look at the music industry 10, 15 years ago or maybe a little longer when when Napster came along. You know, yeah. you, we started with the, all of the lawsuits and all of that. And then almost when it was too late, you know, oh, maybe we should embrace streaming. This is obviously the way people want to, you know, get their music and, and you know, kind of a haphazard, you know, they right. kind of stumbled into it, you know, and. I think it's, you know, again, and I'm not trying to villainize publishing houses. Or of course like that. not, I'm, yeah. I'm coming at this from, I have a, you know, a business degree. I have a business right. background. I think it, it's a reaction of protecting your profits and protecting, you know, the, what you have built, because when you start to go into different avenues, it might not be as lucrative for them, but it's going to be lucrative in the long run in the sense that this is going to get you a larger quantity of writers, a larger quantity of readers supporting you because you are embracing the the new you know innovation that everyone wants but
but I think they have this initial knee-jerk reaction to be like, no, this is mine, you know, like, this is my method that I chose. And, you know, they're just trying to protect their profits and they're trying to protect their place in the industry. But when you're a big giant, you know, people always want to, you know, try and make it a little bit more accessible to everyone else, you know, being this big giant in an industry full of little tiny people who want to have their voices heard, it's not a good look, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, world building. I know you have uh, opinions about world building. It's one of your favorite things, as as you. It said. is my favorite thing to do as a writer. So, when when you uh, well, first when you began, uh, you know, back in the in the late eighties, um, what were your what were your ideas about the world you inherited and what you would how you would expand it? I know you signed on for one book originally. But you did some things in that one book that made people want more and more and more. Yeah, but here's the thing: the thing that the thing that I like, I didn't know the Forgotten Realms when I signed on to do the Forgotten Realms. They weren't out yet, at all. Um, the only the only thing that I got when I was writing my book was Doug Niles' book, the first one, Dark Walker on Moonshake. The, the box set wasn't out, but I got the original maps from Ed. Um, and what, but what I loved when I finally got my hands on that gray box out of the Forgotten Realms was how much of the world was little defined or undefined. So what that just did is it gave you the perfect base to put your games in. But as a writer, it gave me carte blanche. When I, we spent two weeks trying to figure out where I could put my book to not bump into all the other projects, game and book that they had in the world. And I finally got frustrated and I looked at the map and I said, you see that little line above the spine of the world? And Mary Kurtzoff said, I think that's a typo. I said, we'll leave it because that's Icewind Dale. So cool. That's Icewind Dale. It's yours. And, you know, they let me have a drow sidekick who became a main character, which surprised everybody over there. But um, the beauty of the realms for writers in the early days were that you had you were free. It, it's almost like writing a book about World War II, right? You have to know the geography. You have to know like where the Nazis are, where the Axis powers are, where the Allies are. You have to know all that stuff. You have to know the technology. In the Forgotten Realms, you have to know the various powers in the areas you might be going into, if they're already established. And you have to know the technology. And by that, I mean the game rules. That's the technology of the world. The lightning bolt of it is the, is the M16 of the Forgotten Realms. I think they were using M6. No, they were probably on, they probably weren't using M16s when they. Yeah, they were because that was in the 60s when they had created it. But anyway, um, so you know the technology, you know the world boundaries, and you have a place where your whole clock. When I was going to write, after they decided that, they told me at the end of Halfling's Gem that that was it. We were going to go on if I was going to keep working, be new characters. People are done with these characters. They said in 1989, and they were wrong. Um, but when they came back and said, people want to know what Dritz came from, I looked at the, I think it was, it was either the Fiendfall or Unearthed that Canada had like a two page trial entry. Um, I had the old modules, Queen of the Demon Web Pits, uh, Descent to the Depths of the Earth, Fall of the Drow. But that was it. And they really didn't flesh it all out. And I said, well, what else are you going to send me for the Drow? And they said, that's it. You know, that's all we have. Um, and I said, well, what do you want from me? They said, create the drown the realms and you know we had the signposts that they were they were considered evil by the surface races they worshiped loath in and i said in that city 
And then, you know, by 91, Elastray was out there. The good, the idea of good draw isn't just mine. I mean, Elastray's been around since the 30 years, right? right? Um, because it makes sense. Because individual agency, reasoning beings. Um, and so I got to play. I got to just do my thing and nobody was bothering. So I got to create Icewind Dale. I got to create Men's of Berenzan. I got to create Spirit Soaring in the lands of Cavalry was in. I got to create Mithril Hall. I got to take the concept of Gauntlegrim and make it a real place. I got to create now the, the North, Caladay, in the far North, North Pole. Um, and they, there really weren't any restrictions on it. It was like creating my Demon Wars world. Same process. And the process I use, by the way, is I just I just know history. I know cultures. I understand how people react together. Um, you know, cultures don't happen in a vacuum. They happen because of geography. They happen because of availability of, of, of needs, right? I mean, if you live in a super hot area that's full of berries and fruits and stuff, you're probably not building castles, right? Right. If you live in a really cold area, when you have to go out there and hunt for your food against animals that are going to kill you if you don't do it right, you're probably going to build technology that transfers to war. These are the kind of things that just happen in our history. So I study history. I read books. I read about cultures. And I, and I understand the flavor of them. And that's what I look to put in the cultures I put in my fantasy world so that they, in the person's heart, it should seem new and fresh, but somehow familiar. So if you're reading Menzo Berenzan and you happen to have watched The Godfather recently, you probably understand where it came from. And if you're reading Caladay and you know anything about pre-Renaissance Italy, you probably know where Caladay, a lot of it came from. Wow, that that's amazing. Did From where you sit right now, could you, if you think back to where you were then, could you ever imagine that the next decade of your life would be? Gosh, no. no, it's a blur and I can't even go back there. I mean, like I try to think through all the decisions we made because at that time, I mean, even our agent said like the things that were hitting us were right. more than she'd ever seen before in her yeah. career. Like just, and, and how we had to make these decisions with very little wisdom because we yeah. didn't come from this business and yeah. we were literally just like swept up in this. So looking back, it's really hard for us to even look at those things because obviously there's a lot of mistakes that we feel like we've made it. Maybe some opportunities that we missed, especially yeah. with our family because our family was so young at the time right. and we traveled, I mean, sometimes two to three weekends a month and you can't ever get that time back. So now looking back, I'm like, man, I wish I would have been better with balance. Yeah, I, I wish I hadn't felt that fire um, lit so just uh, huge underneath us and just kind of calmed right. down and taken a minute. We're both all breathe. or nothing people. Yeah. Oh, and we yeah. did not stop for a second. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, now looking back, I'm like, it's overwhelming almost yeah. to think of what we've gone through. Well, especially like looking back just as writers leading up to that decision to try it. We had never put out a full-length novel. novel. We had never finished anything. Right. 
both of our computers were full of short starts stories, and stops and short stories and monologues, all sorts plays, of stuff, but yeah. we had never finished anything. And then now 10 years later, we've written a hundred novels and it's kind of nuts. It's very nuts. That's crazy. Did So in those days when you had not finished anything and your computer's full of these snippets of ideas, what were you thinking at that time? Were, were you thinking, you know, I, I do have a story inside me. But what, what, what do you think the barrier was that that kept you from finishing a project? Making a living. Yeah. Making mm-hmm. a living. I mean, we at the time, he was going to school to get his teaching certification. Um, he was substitute teaching. I was teaching and I did private lessons when I wasn't teaching. At the time, we had five kids. We didn't have the time. I mean, and until right. we were forced, I mean, literally forced, I still think to this day, had our son not got sick, we probably never would have finished a project. I don't think we ever would have because you just, as a parent, you're busy, um, you know, you're running around and just having that time to sit down and write out a full novel. We just didn't have it. And yeah. so when we had that like crisis, you know, we, we found the time. I remember I have a picture of him sitting at our kitchen table with our son in his lap with the computer um, <laughs> on the kitchen table, you know, literally like just sleeping like that. And, and we just forced ourselves to finish it. Yeah. Um, and just to see what might be possible and what could happen. And we were literally devouring every blog we could find on self-publishing. I think within like the first three months we published, I want to say like 12 or 15 titles because yeah, we yeah. started publishing short stories. Right. Um, and, and novellas just trying to get something out there to see, you know, will we get any income from this whatsoever? And even how do we even do this just mechanically? How do we get Upload something and- from my computer to the Internet? Right, right. And because we weren't really that tech savvy, so we couldn't even figure out how to make covers in the very yeah. beginning. Like, how do you <laughs> upload it? We had to borrow a MacBook so that we could upload. You know, we just, we did not know what we were getting into. So I think it just forced these things that otherwise yeah. we would have never done. The infrastructure was a lot looser then as well. Right. So the people, you know, the the service providers, cover artists, proofreaders, line editors, all that was really loosey-goosey. And <laughs> yeah, you didn't the, know what you were going to find no. sometimes. <laughs> it, isn't it funny that most people have the mentality that if I can just free up some time, I can finally do this thing. And a lot of times great art comes out of great frustration um, from uh, adversity. You know, I, I think back to um, my youngest daughter, uh, I guess I think it's been five or six years ago now, had brain surgery and had to have a tumor taken out. And it was during that time that the most impactful book that I've ever written came out of that time. It's just a way for me to channel kind of what I was feeling. And 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 the book is, is nowhere about that but it was it all came out of that time and it's so funny that that we so often think if i could just have some time i could do this and usually that's not how it works at all no and people all the time email us asking about writing and they'll say you know i have this book i have this idea and what i say 
to every single person is come back to me when you've written it. You have to just sit down, make it a priority because each of us have the same amount of hours in a day. You just have to prioritize those hours in a way that makes that possible. So come back to me when you have it, when you, when you've sat down and you've made that a priority because you have to, it has to be something so important to you because this is not an easy business. (laughs) It is not. Um, nothing about it is easy. So you have to at least be willing to do the easy part, which for us, honest to goodness, the easy part for us is the story writing. Everything else is the hard parts that we don't like to do necessarily. But the writing of the story, like we could just sit and do that all day, every day. And we would be happy as clams. Yeah. I like to say that, well, not say, I like to think and believe really that really put us over the edge from going from all those bits and pieces and ideas on the computer to being able to consider ourselves novelists was just being able to get past that mental barrier at the beginning that says it has to be right. Mm -hmm. You have to make it perfect. Every scene, every chapter, I have to know exactly where the story is going. It's kind of like throwing your hands up in the air in a roller coaster and just doing it. You just have to finish it, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, you just have to finish it. And once you say, okay, I'm just going to write this. And even if it's not going where I thought it was going to go, maybe I'll have to rewrite it. Maybe I'll have to cut half of it and redo it. We've done that. We've written stories three, four, five times. (laughs) Getting past that barrier of it has to be perfect the first time, I think is one of the biggest roadblocks that'll get you from being an aspiring writer to a writer. Right. Agreed. So 10 years and a hundred novels on, on the other side. Now, do you mm-hmm. think differently about story structure, about the the life of a project when you're, when you're first thinking about a, a book and the characters that are going to inhabit this book? And uh, do you think about it differently now than you did then? Um, other than obviously the, um, you know, I can do it now. I've done it before. Of course I can do it. But d- does it come to you differently? Does does the life cycle of a book, is it different now? I don't think so. I, I remember, you know, when we first started doing this, we were sitting in a Coney Island and both of us were just going back and forth with character ideas and story ideas. And that's exactly what we do now. We're just constantly talking, yeah, date night. We're constantly talking about the voices in our head, um, stories, dreams. I often get dreams. He doesn't dream, but <laughs> I do. Unless I said too much melatonin. Right, then maybe. Um, but yeah, we're just constantly talking through that. And usually we talk through story ideas and characters and even motivations of characters for months before we actually start to write anything. Um, usually I start loosely like plotting things. Um, and, and so there's, that's always been the same kind of process that we've always had. It hasn't really changed. I will say that we are more careful of what we publish in the beginning. We just wanted to get stuff out there. I mean, I would say even like a year in when we wrote the ever trilogy, I would say is when we were like, well, maybe we're stepping too far outside the box and maybe alienating some readers. And because honestly, we, just wanted to write the stories that we were thinking were was interesting and the, we found the romance reader community was very different 
in accepting stories um, than we were yeah. because we came from a background of loving romance stories, but we also read other things too, sci-fi, fantasy, where those right. lines of like the romance, you know, structure is a little bit looser. And so some of our readers were not into that. They yeah. just had very, very strict feelings about what a romance should look like and feel like. And so now we are a little bit more sensitive to the traditional romance reader, where I think back then we were, we were just like, whatever we were thinking might work, go for it. And and then we found out, okay, so when the girl's in the coma, he can't have sex with her twin sister. Okay, we we, we figured that out. This is a no-no now. The romance audience did not like this. Just dunk it. Right. So for us, we just thought it was like an interesting story, but for the romance community, they were like, whoa, you can't go there. So we have learned a lot. I mean, we've just have all this romance community wisdom now, thank God that's out there. So we do really think more about, can our reader accept this? Um, Does this fit in a regular traditional romance box? Because even with Falling Into You, which was like a breakout story, the fact that our hero died four chapters in, that was really outside the box. But we realized there's limits to how how far outside the box our reader community will let us go. So For us, it's a balancing act because we're both naturally outside the box people. people. We we don't like following rules. We tell us there's a rule, we're gonna find break a way it. to break yeah. it and find out how many different ways we can break that same rule. Yeah. But with romance, it's a case of a lot of those rules are there for a reason. reason. And right. it's a case in point of you have to know and understand and be able to follow the rules in order to be able to break them successfully. Right. And when to, when to do that. Right, and I'm, unfortunately, I'm, go ahead. No, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Unfortunately, too, for us, we are so ADHD that we can't write the same story over and over and over again. Our agent said to us once, like, the problem is you can't write the same story. You should. You should keep writing Falling Into You over and over and over and over again with different characters. And a lot of authors are very successful doing that. We just are so, I would say, like artistically spastic that we cannot keep with those same kind of stories. We have to write really out there things to stay interested in our own stories. So that's the challenge. We've even tried. We've really tried. We're working on that now. The series we're working on now is loosely formulaic, but every story ends up being different. Totally different. Despite the fact that it's all structured on the same essential bones. Yeah. And that's intentional every time. But so far, working on the third book now, everyone's the characters like, are going to always surprise you. The voices yep. are just what they are. And even when you try to force it, you can't. You just have to go with whatever creatively comes out of you. And we've also learned from wisdom that you kind of just have to ride that ride. Like you yep. have to let it take you where it's going to take you. 2022 was such an amazing year. And it was so much better because you were a part of it. Thank you from all of us at Dabble and the Storycraft Cafe for joining us. And let's make 2023 an even better year. We'll be back the first of the year to bring you more interviews that can inspire and educate you, more challenges to take your writing to the next level, and more community. Thanks for joining us. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. 
The Storycraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool should not be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at dabblewriter.com and start your free trial today. Thanks for listening.